Hello, Internet. This is Chase Wassenaar, a.k.a. the Red Shirt King, and welcome to another very special edition of the Rough Drafts Podcast. The only thing rougher than our pick and ban phase is trying to keep up with all of these different public statements about whether player salaries should be made available to the public or not. It has been an ordeal if you are a passionate fan of League of Legends to follow the last 48 hours of news, starting from when Ember released their player salaries, going back to even Thorin's article on Christmas Eve about whether or not these things should be made public. It has been a huge debate, and it's a debate that obviously uh, I needed to bring my good friend Walter Fetchuk onto the podcast to talk about. Walter, how are you doing, man? I'm, I'm doing pretty well. I'm a little uh, – I'm, I'm glad that we waited a few days. Well, not a few days, but – you know, like 24, 48 hours for this news to kind of percolate because we've gotten some really, really like interesting opinions out there and, and have had some interesting sound bites from people across the spectrum of, of League of Legends and esports that it, it just, it warms me inside that I can call people out for being idiots. <laughs> it just, I, I have this like, there's this like glee sometimes before summoning insight that Thorin has when he has like when he had like Loco Doco back on where he's just like he's just relishing in this like I'm gonna call someone a moron today. Like <laughs> I just love it. And I can't wait to do that because there are a few people who have said some things that I'm just like, you cannot be this stupid. I'm so sorry, but you can't be this stupid. Well the thing is, and this is one of the things we should probably start with, is that you know, we had a lot of people make a lot of statements, and we're not going to talk about every statement because then we would literally be here for 10 hours. And I don't know about you guys. I don't have that kind of free time. I'm not going to expect it of you guys to spend 10 hours listening to literally every opinion under the sun. But at the same time, I think it's really important to understand that every single person we're going to talk about, including ourselves, by the way, has biases. And these biases have to be taken into account. Something that, you know, when we say, you know, no one's this stupid, no, they're probably not that stupid. But they might think that you, the reader at home who isn't educated in this thing or is just getting sound bites from the team guys that you respect or, you know, whatever your favorite writer might be saying, uh, they're hoping that you might be that stupid because you're not uh, an expert in this. Your job is not to follow this stuff all the time and have the kind of inside information that all these people who are making these statements has. And they're going to prey on that kind of ignorance because that's what PR guys are trained to do. It's literally their job uh, to some extent. And you could be one of those people if you want to be the new social media manager for CLG because apparently they're hiring. Hey, man. And so, uh, is, so is Enemy, by the way, actually. Now, yeah. that I, now that I think about it, yeah, like, two, two teams are looking for social media people. Yeah, and you know what? There's nothing wrong with that. Um, one of the job descriptions that I have as part of the being the editor-in-chief of Imperial Esports is I am planning I, – I do some PR statements. I've done some stuff for them when they've been interviewed uh, in some Turkish and German newspapers. I am going to make some statements here that I make on behalf of Imperial to a certain extent. So – you know, the deal that I have with you guys, because you guys have been following me since before I had a job in this industry, is I'm going to make it very clear when I'm acting as a member of my company and when I'm acting as myself. And the good news about this podcast is uh, the people at Imperial are uh, – they believe in the same thing that I do, which is that honesty matters, that you know, having this kind of openness and this frankness in these discussions matters. So I'm never going to censor myself, but – I have my biases, and you should take that into account. Walter, certainly you've worked in esports for a while. You have your biases. Um, 
So everything here is going to be, you know, just like everything else. We encourage you to listen to all of it and make informed decisions and not just follow whatever soundbite comes out. So I guess the only place we can really start is, you know, the conversation that started it all with Thorin, which is should players have these salaries open to the public? Should they be out there for players to have available to them? It started in really interesting debate about the asymmetry of knowledge between the owners and the players in that, you know, players obviously just don't have access to the same kind of information that owners do and certain poaching rules uh, increase that to a greater extent. You know, and, and for a guy like Thorin, he points to publicizing player salaries as the greatest way to minimize that discrepancy. Walter, do you agree with that idea? that player salaries being released is the best step forward that we can take in the immediate future in order to help lessen those gaps that we're seeing right now? I, I don't necessarily think it's best. I think it's necessary. I think it's a, a very substantial step that needs to go forward. Uh, every sport on the planet releases their salaries for one reason or another. It, it's, it's topical. It's human interesty. You know, we kind of want to know what our what our, our our stars are making. We want to know what all these players are making. We want to, you know, we need something tangible to tell us that okay, double lift is this much better than uh, than than Stixe or Wild Turtle. And and salary, while it's not you know an amazing defining factor of the the actual skill or talent level of a player, can tell you something about the difference between a player. When you look at uh, you know Stephon Curry and he's making you know X amount of dollars, and you look at another point guard who's making you know x minus five million that says okay well steph curry must be a better you know must be a better player must do something more for that team that you know warrants this extra five million dollars or whatever the dollar amounts are i should have actually had some actual sports statistics in front of me but it kind of comes down to it's interesting for the public for public knowledge it's it's interesting for me to know, like, hey, you know, Doublelift makes two hundred thousand dollars a year. That's kind of cool. Good for him. Oh, you know, Stixe makes forty thousand dollars a year. Hmm, that's interesting. But Stixe is a rookie that has never proven himself on the professional stage, where Doublelift has played for you know four years at, at a highly competitive level. So it's human interest to to regular people, to the actual behind the scenes stuff, to the players. Players really have no idea what they're worth. I've talked about this with other people, and and no one really knows how much they're worth. No one knows how much when they're streaming. How much is my impression of me having one viewer, you know, see something? How much is that actually worth? And it kind of all gets like lumped in together in this in this package that they're offered some money and they do these things. And okay, well, I guess that's okay. Um, very few players actually have people negotiating on their behalves or trying to get them the most money possible. Usually, it's you know a, a, a parent um, for anyone under the age of eighteen, for anyone under the age of eighteen that's you know playing the primary negotiator. But above that, unless you go out and you know hire someone or you know a lawyer, you're pretty much negotiating with the team themselves. And the way that esports has sort of worked is that. The players approach teams and say, hey, we want to play for you. And the team says, okay, I'm, I'm willing to give you this much. And 
for some for some lower tier teams, you know, very cheap teams that don't have a lot of money that, you know, they offer low dollar amount and the players say, well, no, we wanted this much, you know, sorry if you can't do that, whatever. But sometimes you get a team like Cloud9 and, oh my God, we can be Cloud9. You get to be part of Cloud9 and I'm just going to put this dollar on the, you know, dollar amount on the table. And there's kind of this implication over the top of it. If, if you don't take it, I'll find someone who can or who will take that dollar amount. I don't need you. I can go find someone else. And there's kind of this desperation, especially among the, the lower tier pros and, and challenger scene players, of trying to get whatever money they can because they want to do this full time, because this is you know their life, because they're putting so much time and energy that you know they don't wait for the third or fourth offer. They just take the first offer of money on it and, and you know run with it. So it, it's very interesting, and putting out these kind of public salary numbers will do good for the players and allow them to sort of get a gauge of, of where they think they are. Of course, you may have some, you know, random challenger that goes, Oh, double lift gets paid 200,000. I'm better than him. I deserve $200,000, which isn't going to be the case. And you're going to have, you know, some negotiating power there. But if you know what other, you know, challenger freshmen or not freshmen, but rookie kind of 80 carries are getting in that, you know, that, that stick say kind of area or, or steal back those kind of carry, you know, guys, and you see that they're making this much money that tells you, okay, well, maybe I'm worth a little bit less than that. And it just helps you negotiate, which is something that you know the owners all know what their numbers are. The owners all know what probably everyone else's numbers are because they've you know inquired about a player. I guarantee you know everybody knew the details of Double Lift's contract because everybody would have loved to have Double Lift. So you you know put out a feeler to the team and say, you know, what would it take for me to get them? And the other you know TSM goes, you know, screw off. It's going to take you a hundred thousand dollars just to get us to let you to talk to them. So. It's interesting to say the least, and I think it's helpful, but I don't think it's necessarily like good. I think it's necessary. Well, it's it's interesting that you bring that up because there are two, you know, especially the way you described it, there are two very different opinions that we've seen come out in the last forty eight hours on that regard. You know, the first is you know Thorin's original article, and one of the reasons that he believed that it was as necessary as you do and as I do, for the record. I'm very much pro-player transparency in that regard. Uh, Thorne had this quote, quote, The little guy amongst the pros benefits from finding out when he can make more money playing for a different team, even if it means playing at a less successful level, and can thus ensure his career is of value beyond merely struggling to achieve significant results. The best players would also benefit greatly, though. When considering the hierarchy of pay in traditional sports, the best player in a region practically always earn the most money. In League of Legends, we have elite-level players like Svenskeren unsure where to sign and thrown to and fro in a panic, which lasts a few weeks in the offseason, since most players want to grab their seat in the game of musical chairs before the music stops and they find themselves playing for the unicorns of love. Close quote. And that really gets to the heart of what you're talking about, when you talk about owners and this leverage they have of if you don't sign, someone else will. Uh, when you don't know what your market value is, all you know is, I have to have a job. I have to be signed somewhere. And I need to be able to do this and make money off of it because pro careers, as a general rule, are not very long. If you're playing in esports for three years, you had a pretty successful career. That is, you know, most players do not get to that point. So you've got to make yeah. money. You've got to, you've got to take care of yourself. Are you willing to risk the open market for that? is very much dependent on how well you're able to assess your market value. And you can't do that if you don't have these things out in the public. 
it is impossible for you to know where these things are coming from otherwise. There was a really interesting point made by Marty Strencheswilk, the owner of Splice Esports, and this very kind of idea. You know, we brought up professional sports earlier. Um, you know, he kind of saw that as a false parallel because here are all the things that pro sports have that esports doesn't right now. Uh, revenue sharing, a split of broadcast rights that isn't belong to the organization that makes the game, uh, localization and treating each scene as its own thing, uh, and, and making those scenes built accordingly, uh, established value from long-term investments, college feeder systems, collective bargaining within players' unions, a salary cap, a closed economy. We don't have any of that right now. And as he points out, quote, in the salary situation, it can cause the same type of single data point causation. When player X is paid $1 a month and player Y is paid $2 a month, a multitude of factors go into why they are paid that way. On the player side, their salary is affected by experience, celebrity, fit with the team, importance overall, timing, leverage, etc. On the team side, you have a total budget, timing, who else signed, available alternative goals, and all of those things. But with a list of only salaries, most of the extrapolation will be a causation that player X is underpaid because he makes less than player Y. Sure, in some extreme scenarios, you can point and say, whoa, this guy gets one-tenth of the next guy up, and be correct that the salary is poor. However, your comparisons wouldn't typically be value-added at all since you're comparing without any context. Closed quote. And this is the point I want to get to next with you. We're talking about making things public right now. Do you think that there is a danger that by making these public, we are looking at one point on a kind of system that has many different variables and factors this interconnected system that hasn't quite developed in the way that some of the other reference points we would use have made. And we might be, we, we might run the risk of zoning in and getting tunnel vision on this one statistical data point. I, I would agree that you are looking at only one statistical data point, but I wouldn't say that that bias is coming from it, that bias exists at any time you bring up something like this. Like in the NFL, you sort of know what, the team's revenue sharing is and you sort of know what salary cap is so you you sort of have some of those numbers but most normal people don't understand the intricacies of the salary cap and the intricacies of of in the NBA luxury taxes and the intricacies of okay well even if you're over the salary cap you're allowed you know this many exceptions or you know this is what a franchise tag is like you know, granted, the large majority of people don't understand that stuff anyways, and the numbers are still out there in the in the cosmos for you to look at and you got to digest. Uh, he makes some points about how you know by giving up these numbers, you're you're, you're opening up the organization and you're you're giving away valuable uh, valuable information to their competitors. Well, you should be you're required in those sports to divulge this information to your competitors when they ask for it anyways if somebody wants to try and you know uh, trade for tom brady they're going to go to the team they're going to request it they're going to give you an offer and they're going to you know they're going to have access to those contracts anyways because that's part of the system part of his 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 fear there is just because that system isn't really in place here and it's almost like the articles of confederation where there's this loose kind of set of rules that all these teams are obeying because they're part of this one system but 
they all do things kind of their own way. You have some teams that provide health care and, and housing and, and you know all these sort of benefits for their players, and you have other teams that don't. You have some teams that have you know these numbers that are firmly written into their buyouts that are you know very firm numbers, like if you pay us this much money, we are more than willing to release the player and let you sign them. And you have others that it's like some arbitrary figure that, you know, call us and maybe we'll, you know, let you offer us some sort of number that will say yes or no. Like him, him saying that is true to a certain extent, but it's also wrong to a very certain extent. And it's just because the esports scene is not, is not very developed yet, mm-hmm. but you need to have things like this happen to help that process. If no one is talking about the salary disparity numbers uh, in Korea and no one is ta- and, and Ember doesn't release these, you know, numbers, no one in the scene realizes that there are now, you know, Golden Glue is getting paid more than some players in Korea that may have been to Worlds. You know, mm-hmm. that 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 is mind-boggling enough. I don't think think that the entire community really realizes that in the world's best league there is still a team that is unable to get a sponsor and might not actually be able to participate in the league because of rules established by that league. Like we just had one of the longest tenured league of legends organizations in that league kind of just close shop because they like ran out of money. Like people need to realize that while we are developing, we need instances like this to happen to create the structure around it. So this happens, okay, well, since salaries are going to be public, it leads to, well, now we're realizing that all these VC companies are going to come in and they could just literally drop a million dollars on the five exact players that they want. And, well, that's not very fair. So now we need to create some sort of salary cap system. Now we need to create, you know, this is a step in the process of making this extremely legitimate, not shady at all, and really an established business that is going to create revenue for the team owners cuz at the end of the day the players want to get you know the players want to get played to play the game they want to win they want to get paid for that fine the owners are coming into it and investing into it because they want to make money out of it somehow and while i disagree with a lot of the practices that i've seen among owners and i disagree with a lot of things they say about oh you know we're really you know victimizing themselves I do understand that this is a business and that they're trying to make money. And I want them to be able to make money because I want them to put more money into it so it lasts forever. But I just don't want them doing it in such uh, ex- exploitative, you know, exploitative ways. Mm-hmm. That's basically what it comes down to. And this is part of that process. And I think one of the important things, because a lot of the arguments have come down to whether now is the time to reveal these things. I think most people there, I don't think I've seen anyone who says we should never reveal player salaries. I've seen a lot of people say that now is not the right time for various reasons. And we'll get into more of them, especially on the revenue side of things. And some of these VLCs and the, the angel investors and all this stuff that have kind of changed the scope of things in a very short period of time. But before we get there, I do think that that power discrepancy you're talking about between owners and players, especially when it comes to money and and why this had to come first you know you look at the poaching rules right now and there were two people that brought this up uh the first was Mason Long the coach of Ember and he brought up how important it was that you know 
players had these resources and had the transparency so that they could make accurate decisions for themselves. Because right now, the way poaching rules work, there's no protection for these players. If, if teams are offering them more money and the organization's like, oh, I don't want them to know that, congratulations. They don't have to tell the player at all. You don't have to p- tell the player as long as he's contracted with you that anyone is interested in them. And this isn't true in any other sport or any other field like this. And you could say like, oh, well, there are businesses where you know you don't necessarily have to tell everyone right away. But there are usually you know, there are exceptions. If someone approaches you and it's approved, they have to tell the player. And here, secrecy is entirely allowed. Um, if you choose not to tell your players what's going on and what their market value is, you don't have to right now. Uh, and Glebe Glarbu, who had a, a statement on this, had a very poignant point, I think, on the whole poaching thing. He says, quote, I'm all for any poaching measures, but this system clearly favors the organizations, and Riot's recent poaching rulings with Badawai and Shim show that Riot is willing to severely harm organizations that are conducting in this, quote, horrible, quote, behavior. Yet, of course, when Bjergsen, Zion, or Double break the rules in regards to poaching, they're given a slap on the wrist. It's a bit funny how unwilling Riot is to be fair and equal in their punishment here. Popular pro equals a slap on the wrist versus someone without a big online persona being forced to sell all of their stake in their company. Closed quote. And, and this is where we are. Players think- have, you know, if you want to, as a player, invite your friends to come on over, no big deal. Apparently that's fine. You know, who cares if, if they're getting paid the, the money or not? But if the owners want to keep you from having that information and an owner dares to share that with you without getting permission first, a permission that, by the way, they do not have to be granted, then they're screwed. And that system is, in my opinion, fundamentally broken as it's written right now. And I, I think it's it's one of the bigger problems I in think, terms of I the think time. I there's, think there's, there's other shadier – not shadier, but other other ju- more juvenile reasons behind the bottom eye and, and Shim, the, the extraneous nature of their – their punishments for that that I don't really want to go into on this podcast. I, I think that's a very good point that, yeah, Zion and, and Bjerg and Doublelift really just had very minor, you know, punishments where these two owners were, you know, being told they basically have to sell shares of their companies, uh, which frankly shouldn't be legal anyways. Um, but kind of getting back into the, the whole poaching that uh, Mason brought had a very poignant point about talking about poaching and and basically said something along he claims that uh that poaching protections last even after the the old contract expires so this is one of the people that i'm calling out for just being plain stupid unless there's something blatantly written into the the uh, i call them franchise agreements but basically the agreements between riot and the teams that state something that says your players cannot be signed to another team within X amount of weeks following the you know expiration of their contracts, or there's some sort of non-compete clause in their contracts, which I highly doubt because the ones that I've looked at don't have them in it. That's just, pardon my French, I'm going to swear, bull****. Mm-hmm. That's not true. The second that contract is expired, that player has no 
no loyalty to you. It do, they don't owe you anything. They're not under contract. They don't have to stay with you. They don't have to not go find out what their worth is. They certainly are not supposed to be. You can't coerce them to resign with you, as uh, as as uh, Travis Gafford stated on his video about this. That there, he's heard of a rumor where a player was being really, really pressured. You know. Not to not to the you know I'm going to take your mother's house or I'm you know threatening your mother like in certain other cases, but very pressured to like sign with us or else you're off the team type level. That's just un- that should be considered unacceptable, and quite frankly, that owner should be kicked out of the league. Right? You know, you're you're threatening someone basically with like, oh, you're not going to have a job if you don't sign this. Like, that's a little ridiculous, and that's just not understanding how contracts work. And considering that your organization is the one that's like trying to be on the very forefront, which I have some major issues with this organization being the one that's, you know, let's publish our salaries and let's, you know, let's complain about player poaching and let's, let's talk about us funding a player union, which we will probably get to later. But this is just, this is stupid. This is wrong. And quite frankly, like, I, I want to hear what Bryce would have to say about this statement of like their you know the the poaching protections last after add their contracts expire because that's just not right that that's absolutely wrong and I don't know why you even think that was correct right uh, if you want to look at the league of uh, the LCS rules rule ten point two point thirteen is the one that explains all the poaching and tampering things uh, there is nothing that says that those protections last when the contract has expired. Uh, and in fact, explicitly says you cannot ask someone to terminate a contract. So it's only in terms of protecting those under contract as it's written. So again, yes. unless there's some secret riot conspiracy, that is totally untrue. And this is the problem when you have people like this. There's a great point to be made about poaching. That Travis story is a great example of there was a team, you know, and we don't know which team it was because he kept his information private. Mm-hmm. But there was a team who knew that there was a player they had. That was going to be offered more money if he left. If he if he was open to the free market, there was an offer on the table for a significant increase in payment uh, for him to join their organization. And they knew that and so tried to use the window in which they didn't have to tell him that offer was out there to pressure him. That is a shitty thing to do. I'm going to bleep myself as well. That is a <laughs> terrible thing to do to a person. And that is what these poaching rules, as they're written right now, allow. And in fact, encourage in a lot of ways, because this is when organizations have power, and why would they ever give that up? Now, to be fair, at, at one point, and I think it was around the, the Badawai incident, Riot, someone at Riot did say that they thought that this was kind of a problem, that teams were never, ever allowed to... Uh, approach a player and thought about creating some sort of grace period, whether it was, you know, a week before the contract, a month before the contract that would allow you to negotiate with a player, but not officially sign them. And the NBA does do this. Mm-hmm. And that, that was what was created the whole uh, DeAndre Jordan, you know, signed an agreement with, with uh, Dallas or didn't sign an agreement with Dallas, agreed to something, and then wanted to go to the Clippers. It's like the same sort of thing that happened with Sven Skarin and H2K and TSM. That same sort of kind of thing where there's like this window of time where you're allowed to negotiate but not necessarily sign. Mm -hmm. So I do want to say Riot has touched on this once, but I haven't seen any official like ruling or official change to anything in public. Yeah, uh, welcome to the problem. 
uh, there's 28 days before the season starts. If they were going to announce something, there have been multiple articles they've made about format changes, rule changes, whatever else. They didn't mention this. I think, clearly, I don't think they've prioritized it. I and think any of that stuff is going to happen in the summer. I don't think that's okay. Uh, you know, and I understand that you know maybe I'm a little bit harsher on this than most. I am very against how this is phrased. I think they have hurt the scene by you know punishing people that I think were doing positive things within the scene uh, by having these rules where they were. And I think that this needed to be more of a priority. And you can tell me all you want, Riot, that you know you're considering it and you're you know contemplating and making changes and whatever else. But until I see it, I don't believe you. Because right now, there's no players' union. There's nothing that says you have to help these players out, whereas the orgs are the things that are making you money. So I'm going to have a hard time believing that you're going to do right by the players when right now you can keep the status quo and everything's going just fine for you outside of a couple very publicized disputes uh, in which, you know, again, you found someone guilty of poaching. You never hear of all the poaching or uh, or inability to reach players and give them their fair share that may be happening all the time because that's never made public because no one ever has to make them public. And that's a concern for me. And I think it's one that we need to spend a little bit more time on as a general rule. But let's let's talk about Ember here because I th- you know the next logical question is, you know, what does player value really mean and how can we properly define it? We have had Ember release this statement. Um, quote, companies have more leverage when there's information asymmetry, and that's wrong. Last night we shared our player salaries with each other. Today we're going to share this information with the rest of the esports world so that Challenger Series and LCS players are armed with some facts before their next negotiation. They also mentioned how much they appreciated that one of the players, upon seeing these contracts, immediately came up and tried to negotiate a better salary for himself by making points about his KDA and how he believed he affected the team. Uh, such that he didn't feel like he was being compensated as well as he should have for those results. This is a positive thing in their mind. Walter, we've both agreed on this podcast already that we like this kind of information being made public. But the way it has been presented and the way that Ember has kind of carried themselves throughout this whole situation, do you believe that this is something that was done because they truly have this heart of gold that wants to see these players, you know, freed from the shackles of inter- uh, information asymmetry? Or do you believe that this is an agenda that they're trying to push because they are one of these, you know, VLC companies that are able to get away with these level of investments? I think it's a little of both, in all honesty. I think that they saw this as an excellent marketing you know, let's make a splash. Let's you know shoot some fireworks off. Let's get people talking about us. I mean, literally, the Reddit, Twitter, YouTube videos, writers—literally all we've been able to talk about since Christmas, you know, Eve—is Ember, 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 Ember. You know, this team that is yet to play a single game ever. They've not played a game. And it's literally all the League of Legends community can talk about in terms of esports because, you know, it's the offseason. Nothing's happening for another two weeks until everything starts. We haven't seen them play a game and all of a sudden, you know, you're seeing more mentions of them than, you know, TSM or or Cloud9 or CLG or whoever, which, fine, that's great for them. I think that's an ulterior motive that they 
absolutely disgust when they thought about releasing these numbers. Uh, what's going to hurt them about releasing these numbers, other than maybe people are going to call them out for overpaying Golden Glue, which... Yeah, yeah, I mean, some of these numbers are a little ridiculous to me in terms of what the players have done in the past. I mean, if you would have told me that and said, you know, Glebe Glarbu is making, you know, going to make $57,000 next year playing League of Legends, I would have looked at you and gone, what? <laughs> you know, he wasn't a very good player when he, you know, played previously on TSM or even when he was on the Challenger teams. He wasn't bad. He wasn't a terrible player, but he wasn't amazing. He wasn't someone that I'd, you know, be throwing a ton of money at. And I, I remember joking on a tweet, man, there, I never thought I'd read the sentence, building a team around Glebe Glarbu. <laughs> they did. And fine. Whatever. Uh, I think it's, I think there is some, some good in them. I think they really do care about their players and they care about the industry. But I, I'm just, extreme my, my conspiracy bells are going off uh especially when you go back to the quote from mesa long in that that poaching kind of discussion was the team is staffed pretty heavily with ex-rioters which if you guys haven't gone through the hiring process at riot it's not easy and then they only accept the very best this is the part that i'm getting hung up on i'm getting hung up on the fact that Almost all of the people involved are ex-Riot employees, and they're the ones that are coming out and releasing salary information first. They're the ones who are coming out and, and in my opinion, misinforming people about how poaching actually works. They are the ones that are going out and saying that we should ha- that we should be funding, as in the team owners should be funding a players' union. This is this is the one that the second he said this statement, and I'm gonna I'm gonna directly quote uh, the CEO Jonathan Pan, who goes by at not vert on Twitter, and this is from yesterday. I nominate at Snoopy to lead a players union for League of Legends. We will pay our fair share of the expenses, and I encourage all of our players to join. I responded to him because that to me is is just. Just absolutely ludicrous. Uh, and I respond, you cannot, you fundamentally realize you can't fund it since you're an owner and it creates a massive conflict of interest. To which he responds, what's the conflict of interest? We won't tell him what to do. All owners chip in to start it off. Then players fund it. To me, this is the, the biggest red flag that I've ever had raised on me in esports. Hmm. He honestly thought that he should be funding an organization whose job it is is to actively negotiate against him at every single turn and didn't think anything was wrong with that. It really is this idea that they, they've presented themselves as these you know, saviors of esports, these guys that are doing this noble thing and, and, and helping all these players out. Um, and, you know... For the record, they backed off a little bit uh, when Mason Long made his thing about you know funding the player union entirely. They realized that if anything, it would have to be equal representation amongst all the owners, so that no one owner had any more power. Where before, it really did sound like Ember's going to take control of a players union, guys. It's going to be great, and and they say these things. You know, Mason Long said this. You know, quote, uh, ultimately, the organization and the players are the same. 
players need an org who can give them resources they need to succeed, and the org needs players to brand themselves in order to have those resources. It's not one being dependent on the other. It's a purely amicable relationship between those two parties, close quote. I hate to tell you this, Mason. That is exactly what it means when you have two separate parties dependent on each other. That is the literal definition. I need one thing, you need another, we both depend on each other to make it work. That is literally what you are describing. And I know that he's not stupid enough to really not get that there's this massive uh, break in his logic leap there. Uh, that he's saying that they are the same because they have totally different motivations and depend on each other for totally different reasons. I do not think that he is that stupid. What I do think is he wants to present himself, and Ember as a whole have wanted to present themselves as this organization that is there for the players. And really what they you know, overall are representing are these angel investors, these VLCs that are now coming in in general in North America. You know, this idea that, yes, we're a whole bunch of th people that are just throwing a whole bunch of money into a system that we have no experience in and have no real proof that this is going to benefit right away. But that's because we care. That's because we want what's best for esports, not just what's best for us, but what's best for esports. Because if esports are better, we're going to be better in the long run. And that may be true. There is some truth in that if the scene is healthier, they're more likely to profit in the long run. I do understand that. But let's be clear. Emperor is not a charity. They're not making these statements because benefiting players you know, is going to, in some way, you know, hurt their bottom line, and they're okay with that because they want what's best for the players. They're doing this because they know if owners have invested in this players' union, the players are indebted to them to some extent, but in a way that is a more carrot versus stick. Right now, we're getting a lot of the stick in the way these organizations are dealing with players behind the scenes. Ember's trying to offer a carrot and pretend that it's not any more or less designed to get the same result. And that, to me, is a shame because we should be talking about how awesome it is that we're finally seeing money in the system. Glebe Glarbu pointed out that there was a player that he knew that was signed to a monthly salary of $1,250 US dollars, um, working 80 hours a week, which you know equivalents to about $3.91 a week. They could be earning over double that wage at McDonald's, where the California minimum wage is $9 an hour. And at least then they'd be an employee rather than a subcontractor, which most of these teams are. That should be the point that we're focusing on. You know, that's a really important distinction. And that's one of the reasons why money really needs to be looked at in esports. But when you don't acknowledge that, when you try to play this Robin Hood type character, oh, we're just giving money to the people who have earned it. I don't believe you. And I don't think players are going to believe you when you try to make this union. And that will inevitably lead these kinds of things to fail. And there's a reason I think that Snoope has been so slow to, you know, go one way or the other on this issue, because I think he's smart enough to see through those kinds of things while still at the end of the day, having that player perspective. And I want to talk about that player perspective just really quickly. Um, 
Because Snoop A has come out and said, when it comes to player salaries, quote, as a player who was relatively savvy to my market value throughout my playing career, I actually wouldn't have wanted my peers to know how much I was making. The reason for this is that it could have disrupted our team dynamic or had other players within the industry look at me in a different light. At present, it's so hard to really determine the market value of a player with so much outside capital being injected, which unfortunately can skew a player's expectations away from reality. Now, Walter, this is especially tied to the DLCs. Oh, this was happening anyways. Like, this is one of the points that I completely disagree with Snoopy on because it's going to have to happen at some point. It's it's going to have to happen at some point. At some point, people are going to have to realize what other people are making. And I would much rather it happen now early on in it so it becomes kind of this – it's status quo versus it happening you know five years from now where all of a sudden players are like well that's not fair and then we get into all these contract holdout situations and this has been a problem in the challenger scene i've been dealing with challenger scene teams since you know season three they know what you know they knew what the cloud nine challenger team was making they knew what other people were making and you know working on small uh, with a smaller org like their expectations were just not realistic. There were plenty of times that a player would come to come to me and say, "Hey, we're you know our team. We're looking for an org. Uh, you know, would you guys be interested?" And I go, "Well, you know, what what are you looking for from the org?" And they just had unrealistic expectations for never having played a professional match together and arguably not being good enough players to the point where you would expect them to be making it into the challenge, you know, into the actual top tier of the challenger series or even into the LCS. So this, this isn't like a problem that's like, Oh, just going to suddenly crop up. This has already happened. There are silver level players who want to be, who think that they're LCS level. Like, dude, it already exists. It exists in real life. It's kind of a shallow argument against it. Like, yeah, I don't agree with that argument at all. I think it's really shallow, and I think it's really, really a poor point well, in the entire thing. And I personally like Snoop, and I think he has a lot, a lot of very good points. But th- this one point is just I, – I can't agree with it at all. Yeah, and it's an interesting one that he went with, and I don't know why he put so much emphasis on, on this as a whole. Um, I, I think there's this kind of uh, breakdown in teams right now, and, and Bryce Bloom in his article did a really great job of kind of separating these three tiers. You know, we have teams that have been around for a while and have proven themselves, you know, as established organizations that have revenue streams that have kind of, you know, been solidified by this point and have grown in a very, you know, stable step-by-step kind of way. Yeah. Then you have this new group of owners who are just throwing a whole bunch of money in and taking a risk that that investment will pay off. Mm-hmm. Now, chances are, you know, they wouldn't be doing this if they didn't believe that they were going to get the investment. But as we're going to talk about later, that rate of return is not guaranteed. And it does create this dynamic where now you have, you know, a top tier set of teams that had enough money to get the best guys and had been doing that basically for forever. Now you have a second tier of guys that are giving out the same kind of money without that same kind of you know established revenue you know predictability in the the long-term viability of these kinds of businesses and then you have this third group of teams that are now going to be almost entirely phased out and i think you know the point that snube makes with that the t- point that bryce makes with that 
is that when we have this kind of three-tiered system now, having the player salaries released before this is settled has a potential risk of upsetting the balance, of putting things, you know, putting teams in a position where the haves versus have-nots, that gap just continues to widen and continues to expand, you know, things like the European and Korean exodus, okay. because I'm sure the players were looking at the fact, wait, I could just play in the Challenger series in North America and make more money than I am there. That's important to know. Um, is that better for the scene as a whole? I don't know. Um, it's hard to look at that and feel great about it. But at the same time, should we deny the players the right to make that decision and be informed on that decision? I would say that the potential risk is worth the reward. But I, I just I, I think that when, when Snoopy talks about that stuff, I think that's what he's really looking at is this idea of, you know, yes, it you know, fundamentally I would love for this to be the case, but when we have these kind of gaps, not everyone's going to make it to the tier one or tier two orgs. And if you're stuck at tier three, I mean, are you just going to be you know miserable about it? Are you are you going to fight your org and kind of demand all these things and have these unrealistic expectations of what they're capable of? But- because if that's the case, you run the risk of upsetting a system that's still in a pretty fragile place right now. What the, the the system hasn't changed other than it's added this third tier, which are these VC, these venture capitalist funded orgs. The the only difference and the only reason so many of these current owners have so much you know sand in their pants is basically because the 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 system has been upset. That's the problem. You had all these teams right at the top. You had the TSMs. You had the Cloud Nines. You had the Team Liquids. You had the 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 CLGs. You had the Fanatics which are basically the only team in Europe that actually has any worthwhile sponsors. But you had all these teams that were getting all these sponsors that were already in that position that all these angel investment groups are, are in, where they were the ones who had all the money. You didn't see, like, Enemy breaking in Red Bull and HTC and Geico as sponsors and having all of a sudden, like, all this crazy cash to outbid other teams. Like, at the end of the day... That's what it came down to is that TSM, CLG, Cloud9, they all had more money to keep all their players, to bid on other people. You know, nobody's, nobody is bitching that Cloud9 went and got Rush. Nobody's actually bitching about that. They're like, oh, yeah, you got a great player. I guarantee you his contract is more than a lot of other players out there. Mm-hmm. And nobody is going to, like, whine about that because, oh, whatever. Like, yeah, it's Cloud9. Like, of course they're going to get it. Like, it's just the fact that now there are new orgs that have all this money. That is making everybody go crazy. And it's that these new orgs are getting money that is from a very unsustainable source. I will agree with anyone who says that this this venture capitalism money is unsustainable. And I'll agree with anyone who says after a year or two, when these groups see no return on their investment, they're going to buck. They're just going to run. Fine. That is, that is 100% correct. But at some point, esports is going to need this infusion of cash from an outside investment. When that happens, which is happening right now, you need to build the system around it to make sure the bubble doesn't burst. You need to do that. And Riot has has been fighting against it so hard. Riot should have been in the past two years building up this this secondary revenue stream for all these really you know cheap teams, for all these teams who aren't able to get sponsors because as... The enemy owner put in that Reddit post that was a month back ago, 
I go to an or I go to a company and say, you know, be a sponsor with us, and they look at us and go, why should we sponsor you when I can just go to TSM because they have a much greater draw. They have a much greater, you know, I can get more eyeballs to see my product than I can with you. So no, even though you're asking for way less than I'm going to have to give TSM, it's not worth it to me. And Riot hasn't created this secondary revenue stream outside of basically the 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 ward the the icon champion icon or the the summoner icon sales. They haven't created this. And that was when all of a sudden you got this thing of, oh well let's do the let's do the 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 merchandising. Let's do this. Let's do that. All of a sudden they've been talking about, yes, we have this big sponsor that's hiding in the wings, hint, 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 you know, whose name was all over the place for All Stars, Coke, 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 that's gonna give them money. And that's what they should have been building these past two years. But now everybody's scared because Riot didn't do it. Sponsors didn't do it. So now it's a bunch of angel investors who are willing to throw money at this thing as a gamble to see if it might work. And that's why everybody is, you know, about to go off the deep end because holy crap, we don't have the system to support this. And they're right. They don't have the system to support it. But they need to start building it now. And that's the thing I think a lot of people are missing. And we'll talk about a couple of people in particular who have been very doomsday about these kinds of uh, VCs coming in, these venture capitalists. Um, but one of the things that I find fascinating, right, and, and this is what you've, you kind of pointed out when you're talking about how riots drag their heels on this and why this influx of cash is necessary to take that next step and might be the thing that drags in these new investors. You know how many people watched the World Championship in 2013? 33 million. Yeah. Uh, in 2014, the World Championship alone had 27 million unique viewers. Uh, 11 million concurrently at any given point during those final series. This year, 36 million unique viewers for the finals. 14 million concurrently. When you have 14 million people watching your finals at once, you have 36 million people who are at least watching a part of it at any given time. How are you not making money off of this? How are we still struggling to get blue chip guys in? Because as Bryce pointed out in his article, which I thought was one of the most fascinating pieces of information that we got I, out I'm, of all I'm of just going to say Bryce's was the best, best content out of anything that was posted. Yeah. And his was, his was the, the least biased and probably the most informative out of anything that anyone put out there. And that's not me, you know, me saying, oh, you know, Bryce is over at Unicorn, better make him happy. No, it, it was legitimately very well thought out and well written. And if you want to start somewhere learning about this, you should go start with his article. I, I just have to put that out there. It's phenomenal. No, it, was, it was insane. And, you know, it's one of those things where we obviously, we like Bryce. We've worked with him in the past. Um, so obviously, you know, take that into account. But I read it and the, the first thing I, I texted Walter, I'm like, that was perfect. That was everything that I think that people were missing. And this is one of the things that he points out. Quote, on a personal level, I have a friend who did sponsorship work for the Pro Surfing League, and he laughs when I ballpark sponsorship levels for most esports teams. Surfing blows us out of the water. Let me say that again. Surfing blows us out of the water. That makes absolutely no sense when you think about how many more eyeballs are on your average esports pro in games like League, Counter-Strike Global Offensive, and Dota 2 through competitive matches, streaming, and unique content creation. Closed quote. It is embarrassing that Riot had so many millions upon millions of viewers 
at the World Championship and is losing to surfing in terms of profitability. We hear all the time that the LCS is operating at a loss. With the views that they have, that's inexcusable. Let, let me just – I just want to make a point right here for everybody. Please. Right now. Right now, I am looking at our League of Legends. There are 769,000 subscribers on our League of Legends. 13,000 currently active right now. Surfing on Reddit surfing. Backslash R surfing. 26,000 subscribers. 40 people on the Reddit right now. Yeah, that that should tell you everything right there. And we're recording this pretty late at night, so the fact that there's 17,000 is not even a high number of people well, that's that total, are actively... that's total... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, I'm just saying the active number right now, that's low. Yeah. And, and when you look at that, you look at how many people are passionate about this game. You look at... It's the most played PC game in the world. How are you not getting these blue chip sponsors? And this is the thing that, you know, H2K Rich, this is one of my biggest problems with his statement. You know, he points out that there aren't enough blue chip companies involved yet, and you know, these VLCs, if they crash, which is the worst case scenario, that these guys invest a lot of money and then burn out really quickly. You know, 2016 and 2017 are key years for this change to occur, and now is the worst time. And what, you know, what they're paying in 2016 might be reasonable salaries in 2017, 2018, but that will lead orgs to die and trust to be lost from the non-endemic companies, causing esports to be set back drastically. And my question is, how can we be set back worse than our failure is right now? With the number of millions of viewers we have at any given time, the fact that it is struggling to turn a profit, that the gap between teams that have money and teams that don't before these VCs came in here was as huge as it was, it is ridiculous. That we're saying, oh, but 2016 and 2017 are the fundamental years. Why was it not 2014 when you had 33 million people watching a world championship? What so, happened to those two years? So, so what, I actually sort of agree with his early points about that these, these two years are extremely key. And I think it's because we've hit such a mainstream uh, aspect that we're so we're, we've become so mainstream. Let's not forget we had Mark Cuban play a game of League of Legends at IEM San Jose. We've got a, a Counter Strike League that's starting up that's going to be aired on TBS, which is a major, you know, cable giant. The Turner the Turner Broadcasting Group is huge. Like we need to realize that yes, there were these large number of you know large number of people that were watching in 2014, but. This year has you know going into 2016 and 2017. Now is when we're hitting mainstream viewership. Like everybody's going to be getting a part of this. I've had to explain to people in the past like six months, just randomly on Reddit, that are you know Bills fans that I know from other things outside of esports. You know they were watching uh, Heroes of the Dorm on ESPN two, and someone was like, "My husband is enjoying this, but what is this?" And I like had to explain to her what was going on. That's the point that we're reaching. His point about blue chips, and I think is very, very important, is that no organization, no team, no sponsor, not no sponsor, no team, no tournament organizer, no developer has gone out of their way to show a blue chip sponsor how esports can work for them. It's not like an NFL team can go, you know, an NFL team goes and says to, you know, 
says to, to Coke or says to Pepsi, hey, listen, we'll make you the exclusive drink at our stadium. We'll make you the exclusive drink at any of our events. We'll, you know, we'll do some fan meetups where you guys are sponsors, where we'll give out a lot of swag with you and we'll have some players to do signings. We'll have, uh, we'll have your, you know, prominently all over the stadium, you know, you'll come up on the, on the Jumbotron multiple times. You'll have your own box. We'll give you tickets to do giveaways. We'll do, uh, we'll do this. We'll do that. We'll put you on the back of our, our, our press wall. So anytime one of us does an interview, you're going to see Pepsi right behind you. We'll let you name the stadium. Like it goes on and on and on all these things an NFL can team can do for a sponsor. We'll loan you out a couple players to do some cute little commercial thing, like all this jazz. And no one in esports, no one has done that. The closest is going to be probably be TSM and, and like Cloud9 and Liquid with HTC. And that's because HTC is the one that's going, okay, well, what if we did a challenger tournament? Yo, what if we engrave your logos on the back of phones? Everyone forgets that TSM was sponsored by Snapdragon Qualicom in 2014 mm-hmm. for a split, a single split, and lost that sponsorship. No one remembers that. No one pays attention to that. And it's just because the only thing anyone remembers about that was that just god-awful commercial they did that was the most cringeworthy thing on the planet. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, go look up TSM Snapdragon commercial and laugh because it was horrible. Horribly done. But no one has shown these non-endemic sponsors, this is what we can do for you. Come into esports. And once you convince one one of those big guys that you can do this, the rest will come. But nobody has done that. And that's the problem with all these blue chips. And this is where, you know, and this is where I get, you know, confused by, uh, you know, the ire that gets drawn towards these venture capitalists. Because these guys are the most likely guys to do that. Because they made their money elsewhere. If they have the money to throw at this, to get into this system, and to you know, immediately start putting out these higher salaries mm-hmm. than we're used to on average. Like let's, let's put it this way. Um, we have organizations like TSM, uh, Liquid, you know, in Europe, you know, Fnatic, H2K now. Um, they've been successful for a while. They couldn't do it. Uh, you know, a lot of them, they had younger owners that are still figuring this out. You know, Hotshot and Reggie. You know, they were former players. They they didn't go to business school and become these executives in marketing and whatever else. They were players that knew how to treat players and are still kind of working through these things. Um, you know, we have owners that are, you know, still very young. Up last year, Gravity's owner was seventeen years old. Is a seventeen year old gonna find a way to convince Volkswagen? To sponsor his team? Probably not. I'm going to take no. a shot in the dark and say that there's going to be a discrepancy in how those deals are made. But you know who might know how to make that deal? Rick Fox. Lincoln Park. Lincoln Park. That was what I was just about to say, actually. I mean, these are, these are the kinds of people that have done nothing but this. They're really, really good at it. That's how they had the money to throw all this stuff at esports in the first place. Because to some extent, as I believe... Um, I forget, I forget who it was that pointed it out. Having this for some of these guys, it's just something they can show off. Hey, guess what? I own an esports team. I own a lot of things, and one of them is an esports team. And all these people watch it and have my name on it. And I'm the guy who gets to be the owner and do all the fun stuff. That's, that's, a, that's, stuff. A, that's a Bill Simmons theory about owning professional sports teams. Yeah. Even if it doesn't make you money, you're one of 30 people that owns an NBA team. 
It's like that exclusivity. Mm-hmm. And that that's like something you should be selling it to the, these, you know. Th- that's the one thing that I'll never understand. The people that watch esports are the hardest demographic for marketers to get to. Mm-hmm. It's this kind of 16 to like 30-year-old male demographic mm-hmm. that doesn't watch TV anymore. None of us watch TV. I don't watch TV. No. I, I only watch TV if I'm watching Food Network at like, you know, 12 o'clock before I go to bed like an old person and I'm going to shut it off when I go to bed. I'm either watching Netflix, I'm watching Twitch, I'm playing video games, I'm, you know, I'm doing something else. I'm not sitting down and watching TV unless maybe it's a sporting event and sometimes I just watch it on my computer and just dodge all the commercials. Mm-hmm. I, that's, like, we're the hardest to target demographic and we're also the most impulsive. Mm-hmm. And, and that should be the easiest thing for them to go out. A car company, like... 16 to 30 year old guy like man tsm should be on the horn with ford and go yo dude you really want to sell some mustangs come here we'll show you how to sell some mustangs we'll get you we'll get you the people that want to buy mustangs or you know htc is genius because all of us need a cell phone when i was getting a new cell phone htc was the second phone that popped in my mind besides galaxy because i just hate apple yeah like that's what they need to be doing, and they aren't doing that, and that's why there was no, you know, was quote unquote no money across the scene as a whole. You know, and this is the funny thing, right? Like you watch the IEM events, like Intel, uh, Vulcan, the what was the the monitors, the, the BenQ, the BenQ monitors. Like I remember all of those commercials. Some of yes. them were cringeworthy. The G two A advertisement sucked by comparison, <laughs> but guess what? I remember them. And that's what marketing is supposed to be. The the and, the, I, the the Intel commercial where they're they're breaking into the CLG. It's a great commercial. And guess what? That's actually a really good commercial. If I'm building a lap, uh, a computer, the first name I think about now is Intel. It was a really good commercial, sure. and it involved all these esports guys. And that was a great potential. Like, look at all these different you know groups that they brought together. And kind of had show off like this is esports. It was a whole bunch of people they liked. It was Counter Strike stuff. It was League stuff. It, you know, they had a Nick Allen making a fine joke, so it had like the Twitch thing in there, um, and it was brilliant. And there are so many opportunities to do that. And these venture capitalist guys could be the guys to do it. Now, I think the reason why H two K and Splice have come out against this practice is endemic to a lot of the problems that we've talked about in Europe. If you've noticed where the venture capitalists are right now, uh, none of them are in Europe. They're all in North America. And so the last thing European orgs want to do is release their contracts. And this is something I was talking to my boss today. And this is the part where I'm going to talk a little bit uh, as an imperial guy and a little bit as just an analyst who loves this scene. And he pointed out to me, quote, the best way in Europe to fix the situation currently going on today is to get big companies involved, which would mean Riot would have to take back their monopoly in terms of controlling what sponsors are and are not allowed, or they allow some of these big money sponsors that have these wagering betting kind of angles, or you somehow find these people that are going to make these larger base salaries. But here's the problem with the base salaries. You look at, you know, most of these contracts are being signed in Germany. Let's say I offered you 50,000 euros a year. 50,000 euros sounds like a great yearly salary, right? That's better than some of the North American guys we've seen. 
But taxes in Germany are so big that you would lose over 20,000 euros of that paying taxes. Oh, and by the way, if you're subcontracted and not paid as a salaried guy, uh, congratulations, you're paying for your own health care too, as well as any of the other things you might need in order to handle your day-to-day life. And that is really difficult because if you're an owner, you don't want to pay any more of those crazy taxes. It's really expensive for you to hire these guys. And increasing the base just increases the percentage of taxes that you're going to pay because that's the way the European economic system is based. It's not as easy to just get these big guys to throw a lot of money at the problem. And even if you do, if you don't have these guys salaried, you can throw more money at it, but they're going to be spending more out of pocket because they're not getting the same protections as these subcontracted guys would. And for the record with Imperial, uh, our players are salaried. We actually, we've made the decision within our company, we're going to be releasing those salaries within the next week or so. Our players are fully salaried. They get their health insurance. Uh, it's all based out of Germany, so they're paid based on German wages, not on Turkish wages, because German wages are a little bit better and come with more benefits for the players. We really thought that was important because we hate the way that subcontracting and everything else has kind of taken hold. And we feel it's really important if we're going to get the players that we want, if we're going to allow ourselves to grow as an organization and put behind some of the you know, unfortunate associations that come from being you know, the only good parts that ever existed of MYM, this is how we're going to do it. We're going to do it by doing right by our players, and in, by doing so, we're putting them and us in a better position to succeed in the long run because we can offer something that most people aren't right now, which is an actual salaried position that comes with healthcare, housing, you know, food, all these kinds of things that other teams just don't have because of the way these contracts work out. And this is where I'm going to turn to you, Walter, because I know you saw a Malixia statement today from CLG. And CLG does not have some of these tax exemptions, some of these you know, difficulties that Europe has in raising money. There's a reason we're seeing more angel investors over there. And Malixia makes these statements on how, quote, I see no possibility that these inflated salaries are sustainable outside of top talent. I don't see how venture cap, uh, venture money will produce a significant return in one to two years. Uh, this happened in blossoming industries before. I saw it in green tech. A lot of money comes in because you see the eyeballs. You think, well, there has to be money there. Sometimes there's not, though, or in this situation, monetization takes longer to figure out. And the money that does come, who's to say it doesn't support the publishers who control the viewership and not the teams? Citing all of these increases in salaries and how they've jumped and whatever else. And I know you have very strong feelings. So I'm just going to turn it over to you for a little bit. What do you hear when you hear this statement? So between him and, and, and Zixlul, who is the, the head coach and was the analyst for them and has been involved in CLG for quite a while, and particularly with CLG Black until this past year, uh, I find it very, very hilarious to hear these types of things coming from this organization uh, because of the issues that happened with Stixay. I think it was the beginning of summer, and him not being al- him not being allowed to be bought out of his his contracts. They're complaining a lot about these VC organizations throwing all this money into it. To which I say, okay, CLG, 
let's I'm going to go to your website and I'm going to look at all your sponsors real quick. Let's let's just do that for for blanks and giggles. Let's go ahead and look at your sponsors as soon as this loads. You are sponsored by Team Razor. You are sponsored by iBuyPower. You're sponsored by G2A. You're sponsored by Twitch, DX Racer, NZXT, HyperX Cloud, Intel, DraftKings, and Ever8, which is a Korean organization. Korean sponsor. Cool. That is absolutely awesome. You seem like you would have quite a bit of money, considering what I know about certain sponsors and how much they, they have. Uh, I believe TSM and uh, Cloud9's sponsorship deals with Logitech last year were around $200,000 per team. Uh, That was, I believe, the number I heard kind of in passing rumors. So let's just say that big sponsorships like that are worth $200,000. Let's say a a Logitech is worth like a $200,000. So let's say that's iBuyPower and Razer. Those are like your two title sponsors. There's like $400,000 there. And let's say like the rest of these are you know hundred to fifty you know hundred to fifty to a hundred thousand dollars. So even at the low end, if you're saying that Razor and I buy power are two hundred thousand dollars, and the other eight are fifty thousand dollars, that's you know that's like six hundred thousand dollars. That's like a lot of money that you're coming in from these like sponsorships. And granted, some of it's probably okay. Well, they gave us our computers, they gave us our gear, they gave us that, this, and that. Fine, whatever. You guys do a pretty good job of, you know, promoting your sponsors. You're constantly tweeting out, doing Razor stuff. All your all your stuff is pretty prominent on your on your hoodies and on your jerseys, and you're pretty good at at, at doing that kind of stuff. I'm not going to disagree. So why are you complaining about all this? Like you seem to have all this money to the point of where I'm going to go to Stixay, and I have a copy of Stixay's contract that he entered last January on January 16th, 2015. That expires on January 15th, 2016. So the day right before the LCS starts, which I have been informed he has signed a new contract for the upcoming season. Great. Uh, just so you guys know, Stixay, in this entire time that he wanted to go play for an LCS team and he wasn't being allowed out of his contract and they weren't going to allow a buyout, let me just tell you guys, he made $700 a month to be a player for CLG. $700 a month. That's not even like the $1,200 mark that, that, that Gleeve Glarbu was talking about. So this is like well below minimum wage, which is like crazy considering the fact that you like think these guys are going to be spending so much time on this game. Here's the kicker that brings it over minimum wage for them is that right underneath salary, it says they are compensated by housing and that this housing is... Uh, proportionate is proportional to the, the player's salary. So basically, part of his compensation, and they're basically saying this is two thousand dollars a month that he's receiving by living in this house, by using the equipment in the house, by doing all this sort of stuff. So basically, they're saying no, no, no. In reality, you make twenty seven hundred dollars a month, but since we require you to live in our house, we're just going to charge you two grand. So you can live in our house and use our internet and use our computer and use our, you know, use all this stuff. They like, it's not written into the contract, but it states that he's kind of like, it's implied that he's kind of required to live in the house, not in the contract, but just the position you're, you're, we have this gaming house. You're going to come live here and you're going to come practice with it. 
another very interesting thing that you guys should also note is that he gives up all of his streaming revenue to CLG as well. Granted, I never saw Stixa stream, but at most, Stixa could only earn 90% of his total streaming revenue, and that is if he streams more than 45 hours a month. So he has to average 45 hours a month in order to receive 90% of the revenue he would have made off of Twitch. And that is if he displays all of the company's graphics. So all those nice overlays, all the streamer stuff. If he streamed that much but didn't include all that sponsorship stuff, he only gets 30% of his revenue. And this is directly from Stixay's contract last year. I'm staring right at it, and it's got signatures from both Stixay and Hotshot GG. So anybody wants to see this and wants to call my bullshit, like I'll, I'll show you this contract. I've got this. I won't tell you where I got it. But I have his contract, and I'm staring right at it as I'm saying it. I'll read it word for word if I have to. Yeah, and uh, and I'm staring at it too, and and it makes me mad. And not just because you know I work for a company that would be appalled by this, because for the record, the salaries we give our players does not include housing. They make above minimum wage in Germany, and they're going to be staying in a house that we provide for them with the computers and everything else. And we are a semi-professional Turkish team. And you are one of the biggest teams in North America. And this is what you're doing. And you're complaining because esports contracts have risen. And, you know, and this was the part that made me mad. Is I see this. And then he has the gall in this statement to talk about how esports is growing out of control. Player contracts are growing by a hundred to two hundred percent. I'm like, oh no! So he's making fifteen hundred dollars a month now. You know, about minimum wage in some of these places. Which that which, would be crazy. I, I've heard that he's making about forty five thousand dollars well, this split. Well, whatever it is, whatever the average, you know. So, so he's is, making he's making about thirty thirty. He's making about four grand a month. But he had the gall to compare that to the three percent growth rate of an average job in the United States, as if esports isn't growing in an exponential fashion. Unlike something like Home Depot, which, of course, it's going to have stable growth. It's Home Depot. What's going to change to Home Depot that's suddenly going to make them give 20% more salary in a year? That's not how that works. You can't compare these things like they're normal things to compare. And it's insulting that he brings these things up. And what's more, it's, it makes me sad because I see people on Reddit. Malixi's statement got very positive you know, response from, from Reddit, partly because he's from CLG, partly because he made a nice jab at Ember, like, oh man, Ember's only releasing these things because they benefit from it. And of course, why wouldn't the people who had money want to release that they have money? Like having money is somehow this evil thing that they should be chastised for. It's like, yeah, they have money and they're paying their players. Look what you were doing before anyone was calling you out on your bullshit. You got away with this because your salaries weren't public. Who knows what you're getting away with now because your salaries are not public. And I don't believe you when you say things like, oh, look, I would love to see players getting paid millions of dollars. No, you want to be getting paid millions of dollars. His statement of I want to see players being paid millions of dollars 
comes directly with, well, then organizations are making tens of millions of dollars, which of course he would love. He would love for his organization to have tens of millions of dollars. Yeah, it's, that's, it's, that's what that, that's what that means. That's reading in between the lines here, folks. That's what that means. Not that, oh, I want to make $5 million and spend every single penny of it on our players. No. That's not no. And the best part of this, by the way, that people don't like to talk about, but Snoopy, this was one of my favorite points that he made in his whole thing. Increased revenue streams don't often go back to the players. You know what happens when companies like CLG get new sponsors? Hey, let's go get a Heroes of the Storm team. I know that we have no idea how to handle a Heroes of the Storm team, and we're often going to invest money in these kinds of things. Um, and then immediately back out if it doesn't work right away, which we've seen happen with several different organizations. But let's go do that. Let's go get a Hearthstone streamer. Let's go get a Counter-Strike team. Let's let's invest in other stuff. So basically, hey, team that did all this good work for us, thanks for doing that. We're now going to invest that money in other people and so we can keep profiting. And you, well, I mean, thanks. Like, we appreciate that. Um... Sorry, though, that doesn't actually benefit you, but we benefit, and that's cool, right? You like when when we benefit, right? Cool, awesome, let's go. And that's something that I just, you know, to me, it's this whole, it, it comes down to the ultimate thing at hand here, which is who benefits at the end of the day from having these things public versus having these things private. If you keep it public, Yes, the venture capitalists benefit from this. But why is that a bad thing? I don't, you know... The sure. players also benefit from it. The, the only people who seem not to benefit from it are the long-term, are the OG owners, are right. the old-school owners, are the guys that, that, from the contracts that I have seen, were exploiting these players. And, and that, that's how it is to me. Granted, you know, Reginald was a player. He knows how players act, but... TSM has never been considered a bad organization. We have jokes about Dignitas and paying content creators with mouse pads. We've had issues with NIP and you know Copenhagen Wolves not being able to pay like pay contracts. And we've had all these issues that have come up all across the board. But at the end of the day, like these players have been exploited. Mm -hmm. Granted, they've agreed to this exploitation. They have said it's okay because you know what? I just want to play League of Legends. I want to be a professional at this. And you know what? Any money I make is, is gravy at that point, which is the, is the wrong attitude. It's the wrong attitude, but that's how, how the scene has survived and how it's ran. Yeah. Trust me. I remember watching, you know, freak cast the first, you know, world of uh, the, the season one world championship at, you know, some random hall at DreamHack, And it looked like it was out in somebody's basement. And look, we sold out like five stadiums in Europe for our world championship. This time we went to four different countries. Like this is crazy. And we're still, you know, paying people nothing because we aren't getting a correct revenue stream. So the second, some people go find an alternate, alternative revenue stream i i just don't understand all the hate i get it's unsustainable i completely agree with you which is why instead of bitching about the fact that all this crazy money is coming into the scene let's figure out a way that we keep all this crazy money coming into the scene yeah and you know how you do that you make it sustainable if this is your competition compete and this is i guess where i ultimately say the losers of this you know, that, that didn't deserve to lose in this is <laughs> Europe. 
And we have talked yes. now twice in the last two weeks about the endemic problems of Europe. I, I just mentioned the taxing today, but yes. you know we've brought up how they're having to air at subpar times on uh, on Thursday and Fridays, where you know people are less likely to be able to watch. They're getting best of twos instead of best of threes. You you just don't have those kinds of sponsorships. And where you look at you know all those sponsors you rattled off for CLG, Fnatic as an organization has accomplished far more, and in multiple esports across the board. And they can't grab as many sponsors as CLG has. And that is an endemic problem in Europe right now. And when we start releasing these numbers, what's going to happen is Europe loses. Europe loses because Europe cannot compete. And raising the minimum salary for these guys only fixes part of the problem because the way the tax system comes down, they're still – like the amount of money they would have to invest to – give players the same amount that North Americans get in their tax system, Mm -hmm. you're asking for so much more from Europe and they're nowhere near close to the revenue that North America is getting. And supposedly CLG is struggling to the extent that they need to complain about it the way that they are and exploit some of these players the way that they are. Um, That's not great. And that's not fair to Europe. And I, and I understand that, you know, if you're H2K or you're splice, you look at that and you're like, well, crap, uh, all these angel investors are basically coming in and ensuring that my product is going to be outdated because people are just going to go to North America. But you know what? We've seen this in Korea for years. I mean, let's face it. Who are the big guys in Korean esports? SK Telecom, the Jin Air Green Wings, CJ Entis. What do all these guys have in, com- in common? They're, They're big all major companies. corporations. Yeah. That are really good at selling themselves and making money. Who are the ones that have really struggled? Uh, the Koo Tigers, Anarchy, uh, Ever Now has already lost Athena. They're going to lose all of their guys by the end of this. And there's already this wealth gap in Korea. And, you know, throwing money at the problem doesn't solve everything. Mm-hmm. But you have to find a way to sustain this somehow. And the only way you can do that is by having big orgs like this. The reason that LCK can continue to exist is because they have these huge sponsors willing to keep paying the money to keep the Korean talent going, to keep investing in the kind of infrastructure you need, to keep the talent at the highest level, and thus Korea continues to reign supreme. North America now has this opportunity because they have this new influx of money with guys that are more experienced in turning that money into more money. And let's see what they do with it because I think they have the potential to do a ton with it and pave the road for other teams to do the same. But – and this is where it gets a little scary. How does Europe fix this? Some of that comes from – making guys salaried guys instead of subcontracting it. Like I said, mm-hmm. it's something that Imperial, uh, we feel very strongly about. Uh, not everyone wants to do that because that's more taxes that you have to pay as an organization. That's even more money you have to put into the base salary just to justify it to yourself. Yeah, And I get that that's hard when you're getting no help from Riot or from sponsors in general because of the way the system is currently organized. But that's not the new money problem. And that's not the player's fault. 
and hiding this information from players and allowing this you know asymmetry of information to exist is not going to solve any of that. You need to release this information because when Riot is forced to acknowledge the huge wealth discrepancy amongst all of these European organizations, that's when we'll get change. Because Riot is going to see, you know, imagine how mad fans are going to get when they compare Ember's contracts to H2K's contracts. Remember, H2K thought they were giving Sven Skirin the deal of a lifetime when they were offering 5.5K per month, which is a little about $65,000. Ember didn't have a single player under $70,000. You know what? You know how Riot's going to look when H2K, a team that has all these superstars, a team that has all these players that are beloved by European fans that have done so much for the scene as a whole Mm -hmm. and are going to have to point out that they're not being able to put up nearly that much. And by the way, the amount of money that players take away from that is even less due to taxes. Yeah. Riot will have no choice but to fix the system. And that's the part that I think these people are missing. H2K and Splice, they get scared by it because they're afraid that if this information comes out, what ends up happening is it's going to make sponsors who are already looking at it and seeing it as temperamental even more afraid. But honestly, I don't know what else kicks Riot in the pants enough to finally fix all of these huge endemic problems that Europe has. Because without fixing it, without releasing some control and allowing teams to get more additional sources of revenue, without giving teams the tools that they need to grow in this same kind of way, you're going to kill Europe as a region. Maybe not in one year or two, but you will at the end of the day because you have eliminated any incentive for players to stay there. And instead of getting mad at the venture capitalists for just having money and wanting to make this scene uh, a profitable place, get mad at the people and the organizations that had the ability to get you there and haven't yet, that have failed you to this point. Because that's where the anger should lie. Not at, not at Rick Fox, not at Ember, who you know maybe aren't as you know, genuine as they seem in, in talking all these kind things that they're saying. But they're not the problem. The problem is the people that are preventing those same people in investing in your own scene. Fix that. And how are you going to do that? Let Riot try to explain how this system is benefiting Europe in the same way it's benefiting North America when the discrepancy is as huge as I guarantee you it will be if those numbers get released. <sighs> but that's a podcast. Um, I, don't, I don't think we're going to have anything more than that. <laughs> I need to get that ran off my chest. I, uh, like I said, it's been something I've, I've talked about a lot with, with my owners recently uh, and my coaches. And... You know, seeing it, seeing contracts like the the Stixay contract, and and hearing all these arguments, I just I needed to get that off my chest because this is where we are, and we need to be focusing on the right issues right now, and not getting distracted by oh, but who's getting a slight PR bump and all of that nonsense. None of that is the problem here. Let's focus on the problems here, and the problem right now is the power gap, both between players and the organizations and between organizations that Riot has allowed to grow in 
organizations that have been limited in that. So, yeah. so that's the podcast. I hope you guys enjoyed it. I know it was a lot of very uh, hard things to talk about. It was certainly a dense podcast. This is going to be one of the longest podcasts we've ever released. Maybe I'll split it into two parts. I haven't decided yet. But uh, Walter, where can they find you on social media? Well, I, I just, I just kind of want to sum it up and, and say the, the biggest issues I see here is just complaining about uh, uh, adding another stream of revenue to the system is not a terrible thing. It's not a bad thing. It's not the end of the world, but it raises the stakes. And that's what these VC capitalists have done is they've raised the stakes. They're adding all this money, this extra revenue, you know, this, this alternative revenue source. And that's not necessarily the worst thing on the planet. They're raising the stakes in Counter-Strike with Ely being on, on TBS and how people are going to react to that. Blizzard is raising the stakes by adding all these regional championships, you know, these seasonal championships for Heroes of the Storm and the WCS changes for StarCraft and creating a new IP competitively in Overwatch. And smite by expanding into xbox one like yes this year is extremely extremely risky for esports as a whole across the board but it has to happen at some time we can't just bury our heads in the sand and say don't no not now not now because we'll still have similar reasons for us not to do it a year from now two years from now Mm -hmm. let's just do it but if we're going to do it we have to do it the whole the whole way we have to accept that the money's coming into the system and we have to build up the system and build up the structure so that this bubble doesn't burst, so that all this venture capitalist money doesn't just disappear in two years and we're back to, okay, well, we're going to just do $1,000 salaries or people are just going to stop playing because it's not worth the time or money anymore. That's what we need to learn from this, not not demonize the VCs, not demonize Reggie and the old school guys. We need to figure out a way to get everything to work together and build a sustainable system and a sustainable economy for all this Mm -hmm. so that no one's being exploited. Nothing's really unfair that there's a competitive, there's a competitiveness in all aspects, whether it's player salaries, whether it's team revenues, whether it's negotiating contracts, whether it's the actual gameplay. We need all these things to happen so that this is like this awesome esport that lasts, you know, for years and years and years. Right. And at some point, you're going to have to take that risk. And it's one of yeah. those things like you, you imagine it's like uh, I almost compare it to like asking a girl out. It's like I want to find the perfect moment. There's never a perfect moment. There's never <laughs> going to be a time where you look at this and you say there is no risk in taking the next step for esports. It's never going to happen. But right now we're losing to surfing. Let's remember that. You got you to gotta take that leap because if you don't do yeah. it now, when are you going to? And, and the opportunity has naturally fallen into your lap with these venture capitalists, guys that are good at making money and have done it before and believe they can do it again. L- learn from that. Adapt to that and make the risk also pay off with that reward because the reward if you do it is huge. And instead of being so afraid of the risk and the negatives that can come from it, let's do everything we can to make those rewards as huge as they can possibly be, especially in Europe, which God knows could use the lift. But that's that's enough. Walter, where are you, can they find you on social media? Well, I appreciate everyone for, for stopping by and, and listening to what we have to say on the issue, even though we are not the the, the experts in contract law and finances that other people may be you can find me at c80s underscore lol i'll be happy to talk more about some of this and if any people want to 
you know, call my bluff about Six Ace contract, man. I got screenshots ready. I'm ready to prove some of this stuff. So <laughs> I'll be right here waiting for you guys. I almost feel like I should question you publicly just so you release it because I really want to <laughs> see it out in the public. I feel like it needs to be a thing. But uh, but I am on Twitter at RedShirtKing. All those statements, by the way, that we talked about in this podcast are going to be in the podcast notes so you guys can read them on your own time if you're interested in in seeing them for yourselves and seeing on what points you agreed and disagreed. We'd love to talk to you about this on social media. Um, this is a very important topic, and I think it's really worth um, dissecting even further and keeping this conversation going. Um, you can find this podcast uh, esports gambling hours where it is right now. I have officially gotten the approval from my boss to call it the Rough Drafts Podcast. So that name change will be coming through in the beginning of January. But if you subscribe now to the Esports Gambling Hour, you'll just be there when it happens. How awesome is that? Uh, and in the meantime, uh, you can also find us on SoundCloud.com slash Esports Gambling Hour if you're one of those people that really doesn't like waiting the half hour for iTunes to get its act together. Or you can find us on unicorn.com slash community where the fine folks over there, including Bryce Bloom, have allowed us to host our podcast there and interact with you guys through that site as well. Um, next time, I promise it will be a more upbeat podcast. We have a guest that we're hoping to talk to within the next few days and the LCS previews. They're coming up, guys. Get excited. And until then... Goodbye, Internet.